When you're at acupuncture college, you learn about separation of yin and yang being death. But actually, we have many deaths all the time that our consciousness, uh, when we're fully connected, and the, uh, the heart and the kidneys or the yin and the yang or whatever aspects of yin and yang we're talking about, we're fully integrated, then we have our consciousness clear. But we go in and out of trances through the day, if only momentarily. And that momentarily, we our relationship between yin and yang disintegrates. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. We joke about it, laugh off the level of distraction when uncounted minutes turn to hours on Facebook as we passively click from link to link until the browser panes on our computer completely mirror the disjointed distraction of our minds. Experts say this technology is shortening our attention spans. Perhaps it is so, but it's also possible that the technology is simply holding up a mirror to the confusion and the box of old photos mess that is actually our own mind. How comfortable are you with sitting for a moment in the midst of the distraction and clutter? How antsy does it make you to hit pause for a moment, to not try to resolve the latest anxiety or concern that just entered your mind, or disentangle from the ever-bubbling to-do list that runs along the bottom of your awareness like a stock market ticker, endlessly scrolling along the bottom of a 24-7 news show? How often do you surrender to the microdose distraction of some cotton-candied link bait slyly written to tug on your heartstrings, or tickle your curiosity, or trigger your threadbare rage? We are sold the internet as a vast network of information, but when you look at the signal-to-noise ratio, what we really have is a distraction-generating dopamine machine, the library of Alexandra built in the center of a virtual amusement park. Think it's not so? Try ignoring the lure of a few minutes of, air quotes here, relaxing with some mindless web surfing. Just as rats will tappity-tap on a lever that delivers the sensation of pleasure, even to the point of starving themselves, so too we will while away hours a day checking email in the grocery line, getting a voice text into the stoplight, or just looking again at the webpage that we know is going to call forth anger and righteous indignation. What's the solution? Honestly, I don't know. I am as susceptible as everyone else. I'm perfectly happy to have my brain flooded with dopamine and live the illusion that I've actually done something because a new page opens up on the screen of my mind. We talk about the computer being a labor-saving device, something that makes our lives more convenient and productive, and it's true. But how to decelerate back to the speed of our biology? How to drop our incessant search for something that will fix our problems and provide a sense of security in a world that is ever unfolding with change. Perhaps it starts with the practice of not thinking that life offers a particular answer and living more deeply in the texture of the questions and not conflating the flash of digital noise with information or learning. I'm beginning to feel like a real shill here for the Saam acupuncture system. But the reason that I keep talking about it is because I've found this method to be super helpful to me in clinical practice and because it seems to tie together a lot of loose threads from other currents of study that I've swam in. So I hope some of these regular little riffs and tips from the system are helpful for you in your clinical work. One of the things that I picked up from studying and using this OM system in the past year or so is an appreciation for the yin 
and yang aspects of the five phases. Most of us have learned to focus more on the yin side of the phases. Really, when you think about it, the yang aspect of the five phases is kind of a second-class citizen. But beyond this, recognizing that there is a yin and yang aspect to each of the phases, it helps us in clarifying our diagnosis and in targeting our treatment. So let's take wood, for example. When we think of wood, we usually think liver. And when there are issues of anger, frustration, and emotional outbursts, we tend to blame the liver. But think about this for a moment. The liver is yin wood. Yin goes more inward than outward. It goes more down than up. And especially as the liver is drain, yin wood. Really, this is a deep inward cooling energy. Think of the whole rainforest in Washington State or a deep, cool, misty redwood grove in Northern California. People with an excess of yin wood, they tend to have their energies move in more than out. I mean, even to the point they can be clumsy and quite unaware of the effect of their actions on others. Yang wood is a completely different story. That energy, it goes up and it goes out. And when you realize that the gallbladder is Xiaoyang yang wood, and remember that the Xiaoyang is about fire, well, you can see that angry outbursts, while associated correctly with wood, are really an aspect of the gallbladder, not the liver. So often, when we say someone is, quotes here, woody because they're angry, that makes sense. But remember, it's yang wood, and the best way to treat that is by supplementing the counterbalancing energy of the pericardium. Unsure of this pericardium gallbladder relationship? It's in the Suen number 68, which never ever made a lick of sense to me until I started to study and use this OM system. We're going to be talking about this and a whole lot more at the class in St. Louis at the end of the month, June 29th and 30th. If you can't join us here in St. Louis, then join us from your living room or your back deck as we'll be streaming this two-day seminar that will get you all the basics you need to know to start safely and effectively treating your patients on Monday morning. The replay of the live stream will be available online for a month after the class. Get the details, of course, over on the website, geological.com forward slash S-A-A-M dash class. And speaking of educational sorts of things, Golden Needle Online supports Geological because they know that a successful practice relies as much on continuing education and exploration as it does on needles and other supplies. We all like doing business with people that we know, like, and trust. People who are in business because there's a change they want to see in the world and they want to be a part of it. The folks at Golden Needle, like you, are dedicated to health and well-being, and they love to serve the practitioners who treat their patients with natural methods. They also know that medicine is a lifelong learning endeavor and therefore support the conversations here that serve the acupuncture and East Asian medicine community by providing a vivid forum for the free exchange of ideas, theory, and practice. Golden Needles supports your practice with a wide selection of needles, clinic supplies, and herbs all at fair prices and with terrific customer service. Golden Needle, supplies for your clinic and nourishment for your mind. Well, we're about to get into today's conversation with one of the, well, as we say here in Missouri, the good old boys of Chinese medicine. 
Charlie Buck has been at this stuff for decades, and I always enjoy talking with practitioners who have the perspective of decades, and they're as enthused about their work now as they were when they first began. You know, it's kind of a delicious sort of job security to know that you can grow and evolve in your work for an entire lifetime. But before we jump into this conversation, a quick reminder that you can show a little love for the podcast by sending me a postcard from where you listen to the show. And if you want to show even more love, sign up to be a Chia Logician. Every person who signs up is another reason I can tell my wife I'm not crazy for doing this podcast. All right, enough of this jawboning. Let's get into today's conversation with Charlie. I've got Charlie Buck with me today. Charlie is a long, long time practitioner of Chinese medicine. And I just love talking to these folks that have been at it for a couple of few decades because we evolve over time, our practices evolve over time. Well, gosh, for that matter, Chinese medicine evolves over time and we're part of that. So it's always a delight to talk to someone who's been part of that evolution. Charlie, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. It's a great honor to uh, to be interviewed by you, I think, given the list of people that you've spoken to before. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine. You know, I feel so lucky. I live in the Midwest of Missouri. It's a little bit isolated. And yet I have a chance to talk to interesting people all over the world you know, that I share this common interest with. So uh, it, it's a real delight. Often I ask people, how did they get started with Chinese medicine? Because no one in high school in career counseling said, think about Chinese medicine. But I, I just have to tell you, this is hilarious. I got an email recently from a high school student who listens to the podcast asking about what it's like to have a career in Chinese medicine. So I, I suspect today is very different from this young man who wrote me the other day. I'm curious, how did you find your way to this stuff? I was going to be a scientist from being very young. And uh, I went off to medical school to study neurophysiology. And I uh, started there in 73 and graduated in 77. And I was then doing a research project, a brain research project, looking at the control of movement at Bristol. I asked my supervisor what he thought the most interesting area of neurophysiology coming up was in 1996, 97. And he said, oh, acupuncture, definitely, which was the strangest thing because that word it was, was on the fringes of our consciousness. We, it was a, an exotic word. It was a word that we'd barely heard of in the, in the language. So that uh, triggered me to start looking into what he was talking about and what I found was that he was talking about the early research into endorphins that had come out of the Beijing Professor Han's work in the late uh, 1960s, around 1970, which led to a race to identify what these very powerful pain-killing substances were that were released in response to acupuncture. So I was a child of the 60s and 70s, so I had to go to look at gurus and jostics and yoga and all that stuff. That's what you did if you were a thinking sort of person. And I looked at all that and I decided what I liked was Zen. And what I liked was the Chinese stuff, the yin-yang stuff. I didn't want a bearded guru 
uh, in India to follow particularly. And I like the, the cleanliness of the, the guru freeness, in a sense, of the Chinese traditions. So I was pretending to be a Buddhist, which sort of clashed a little bit with doing live animal research. And uh, that led me, <laughs> we, were beginning to, we were beginning to get animal rights protesters outside the medical school. And I had a license to do uh, vivisection research on, on animal brains. So I decided that that was not going to be the career for me and that I would instead see if I could sneak into Tibet, which was closed at that time. But I found that you could walk across Nepal onto the Tibetan plains at a place called Mustang. And so I was walking through those Shangri-La villages of uh, Nepal in 1979, where people greeted me and gave me a, a bed for the night and, and fed me. But they also hoped that I'd got some medical qualifications. Now, I'd done modules in pharmacology, physiology, biochemistry, all those things. So I wanted to help those people, but I realized that I didn't have any tools. I didn't have the, the, uh, the tools to do that. And I thought, well, even if I was the best conventional medical doctor in the world, I would be just as useless in that situation because one person had got dysentery, somebody had got a tooth abscess, and somebody had got hepatitis, I think. The word acupuncture came into my head. I thought, if acupuncture works, or if herbal medicine worked, I might be able to do something. I got to New Delhi after three or three months or so in Nepal, and I looked for a book on acupuncture, and I found Acupuncture Cure of Many Diseases by Felix Mann, which I, which I read on long train journeys over and over again. And then in, in uh, what's it called, Bombay, or Mumbai as it is now, I found a book by... Um, uh, Manaka on Japanese acupuncture. So I read that. And then I decided when I got back to Britain to see, look into training in that and, and researching it some more. Did you actually make it into Tibet? Uh, onto the Tibetan plateau, yes. Onto but, the plateau, yes. Yes, yes. I didn't go into full Tibet. I mean, it was it was illegal technically. You know, technically it was closed. So it was a bit of a sneaky thing and then run out kind of thing. You know, it's it's just amazing. I mean, here you are on this journey, you're headed to Tibet, and along the way you see the suffering. You've got this background in medicine, you've got this background in science, and you're thinking, how can I help? And realizing that the wonderful stuff, I mean, there's great stuff in, in our conventional modern medicine, and it would be absolutely useless in that context. And what else is there? I love things that are apparent contradictions. And one of the things I think I love so much about Chinese medicine is that things that apparently are deep contradictions are complementary aspects of something that we can pay attention to and maybe learn something from. And so here you are, this Buddhist who does vivisection. Failed, failed Buddhist and failed, failed, Buddhist. A failed neurophysiologist. <laughs> <laughs> All the Buddhists that I know that are really Buddhists are failed Buddhists. Mm. It's very difficult to succeed as a Buddhist, actually. It's, a, it's almost impossible, nearly as, yes. as difficult as Chinese medicine, really, to actually reach a position where you think, I've done it now. I'd like to dig a little more into that because, you know, we all want to be effective. We all want to be helpful. And we want to make a living. We want to help people. And yet, so often, the journey of learning to be a practitioner is the journey of failure. 
failure is constantly our companion. I didn't expect it to be this difficult, I must say. And then I accidentally, at acupuncture college, discovered Chinese herbs, which were unknown completely, absolutely unknown in Britain. The words Chinese herbs never appeared anywhere, not even in acupuncture college. And there were no Chinese herb importers. There was no training. There were no books in England. But I, I shared a flat, luckily, with a Portuguese chap who'd lived in California for a while. And he'd got a li- his secret library of books on Chinese medicine. And he would brought some books uh, from California on Chinese herbal medicine produced by an, an organization called the Oriental Healing Arts Institute. And this was Hong Yen Su. He let me copy his uh, library, so to speak, photocopy it. And so I started t- studying Chinese herbs when pretty much nobody else was doing that. Uh, actually, Mazim, you know Mazim Al-Khafaji? Yes. Uh, he, he was at the college at the same time, and he, he was a friend of this Portuguese chap as well. So that started him on the Chinese herb route in those days. So it felt that felt like it was like being an archaeologist. It was like discovering something really unusual and rare. And when you do that, you you're on hyper alert. You just learn everything. But I had no idea how difficult the world I was stepping into and how complex uh, that world is. Tell me more about some of the difficulties that you ran into. Um, apart from the lack of books, there was no formal teaching, and there were no Chinese herb importers. So uh, it meant that I had to befriend a Chinese herbal pharmacy in Chinatown in Manchester, which at that time had got the biggest Chinese community in Europe, I think. So they had one Chinese doctor there. You know, if a Westerner walked into their herb pharmacy, they would be told, oh, the supermarkets across the road. You know, people people never went there. People never went there. But because a friend of mine had made all the herb drawers for him as a, as a joiner, as a carpenter, he gave me an introduction, so to speak. And so I was able to have a contact in the world of Chinese medicine who would sell me Chinese herbs for a price. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so funny. I'm, I'm sure you walked in there. They took one look at you and thought, this guy's really lost. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they did. Oh, I was excitedly lost. I was. I was. Yes. It's possible to be lost and excited at being lost. Well, it. I think it opens up our mind. It opens up our sensorium. Not having the usual frameworks that we inhabit, uh, that allow us to go on sort of an autopilot. I, I think it's very exciting. The uncertainty can be unsettling, but it's also an opportunity to learn a tremendous amount. All at the same time. So when you started, I mean, there weren't really books. It sounds like there were some teachers, but I mean, it sounds like the teaching was pretty basic. How do you actually acquire an understanding of this stuff when you don't have people around that, that have a lot of experience to guide you? What happened was that Ted Capture came over to Britain and taught a course for two years So uh, although I was already practicing Chinese herbs by that point, I um, signed up to study with Ted Kapchuk, who was my hero. He was my great hero of that moment, of those few years. Uh, I I admired him completely. uh, You wouldn't do this these days, but I recorded all his lectures on tape and then transcribed them all, typed them all out on a 
this was before computers on a, on a typewriter. So somewhere in my collection, I've got word by word, as well as all his stories and jokes, which was quite something. I've got um, that, that two years of lectures from Ted Kaczuk. Yeah. Would you primarily consider yourself an herbalist or an acupuncturist? More of a herbalist than an acupuncturist, simply because it's 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 another level of game. It's just so enticing. It's so beautifully complicated. It's like three D chess, but there's somehow there's a a dynamic between simplicity and complexity in the background of Chinese medicine, and so you wallow in all the complexity, and you learn, you write all that all down, and you try and learn it, and you get baffled. But at some level, you think there's also uh, a simplicity behind this medicine as well that you can begin to apply once you've paid your dues and done the complexity bit. So that's been a bit of a quest of mine as well, is looking for the ways that people have sought simplicity in the past. They've sought it in lots of different ways, I think, in the world of Chinese herbal medicine. Sure. Well, and there's so many aspects to the Chinese herbal medicine tradition, right? I mean, Pretty much everyone would trace what they do to some degree back to Zhang Zhongjing, right, and Shang Hanlun. But there's, there are masters, there have been masters of herbal medicine throughout the centuries in China. Are there any particular strains or schools or currents of thought that you find particularly helpful and useful at, at this stage of the game for yourself? It's been through time that I've, I've explored different areas. I can't stop myself from turning over stones and investigating them. And at some point, I <laughs> What's began... What's under that rock? <laughs> some, uh, there's a tendency for TCM practitioners, especially in the West, to, to treat everybody as if they're deficient and give them a pat on the back and, oh, you haven't got enough blood, you haven't got enough chi, you haven't got enough yang. And I began to wonder what all these other herbs were for because all the, to the tonics was one chapter. So at one point... I would say in the late 80s, early 90s, I began to think, hang on, what am I doing here? And I began, to, one of the first doctors I explored, I wondered who was the man who had considered this question in history before. And that turned out to be a Song Dynasty master, one of the four masters of the Song Dynasty, Zhang Song Zheng who was 1156 to 1228, and he wrote the attack pathogens concept uh, or founded that school that was to do with draining pathogens. When you looked in um, Paul Unschuld's History of Ideas, I think he just got three sentences in the whole Song Dynasty chapter. He also appeared in the back of Ted Kapchuk's web where he got one sentence, mainly promoted purgation. But when I looked into it and I started translating material on what he did, it was really interesting because he was a masterful expeller of pathogens. He said you don't need to give tonics all the time, that when the, when the pathogens are removed, it usually results in, in resolution of the problem. So he was, I discovered he was, for example, removing pathogens from the eyes by induced lacrimation. And that came under the heading of emesis. Emesis is, is the removal of pathogens through the upper orifices, which everybody interpreted as causing vomiting. But actually, he used sneezing powder to clear people's sinuses. I felt there was a misinterpretation of the expertise that he had by a, a, an overly simplistic look at it. So uh, what I do is I study these things 
and look into them and translate some stuff and then usually publish an article on it and then realize that it's not the whole thing, but it's a really useful thing. And it's really satisfying clinically when somebody steps through the door where you go, I know what to do here. This person needs the crap removing from them. So I had a patient brought to me, a young lad in his 20s who'd been doing work in Nepal, funnily enough, by coincidence, uh, for a few years. And he'd come back really ill. He was in jaundice. He went through the specialist tropical diseases hospital for, for two years or so. He had acupuncture for over a year. And uh, he was jaundiced, he was losing weight, he'd got no appetite, he was nauseous. I said, right, I'm going to give you this. And I gave him Da Huang uh, uh, in one form or to another, I can't remember exactly. Then moved on to clearing damp heat and moving his gallbladder and liver. And, and the jaundice went away in a week, less than a week. And he was back to health in just you know a couple of months. And that's so satisfying because it just cleared the scrap away and straight away it lifted, lifted off. After two years of hospital investigations and a year of acupuncture, very satisfying for me to to do that sort of thing. So, but that's not the whole thing. You know, that's, there's lots of other uh, aspects to Chinese medicine that need to be explored individually, I think. I'm thinking about sneezing powder. I love this. We have people with a lot of allergies here in the Midwest of America. Um, has to do, I guess, with the climate, uh, trees with pollen, but trees, trees with pollen everywhere. I don't know. For some reason, St. Louis, it's a hotbed of allergies. And people come in, you know, they're sneezing, their eyes are tearing. It occurs to me as we're having this conversation that while I've been looking at this as, oh, they're being attacked by some kind of external thing, I'm wondering how many of my patients have something internal, and when this external thing comes in, it takes the thing that's inside, sort of stirs it up, and instead of like trying to protect them from the outside, what if I could help expel the pathogen they've got inside of themselves, and then they just wouldn't be allergic anymore. Does that make sense? Am I on the right track here? Yeah, uh, sort of. I have a lecture on this, so you have to be careful not to press my lecture button. But you know Guajertang. So Guajertang was basically for sweating or an external condition that wasn't resolved by sweating. That's to say, this was something I investigated for a long time. It was, it was described as a, a disharmony between ying and wei. When I read Giovanni on this, he said, well, you need to, to strengthen the kidney yang and strengthen the whey system. And I, tr- I tried that. It didn't work. I had patients with very clear uh, Wei Chi, whatever in TCM we call Wei Chi deficiency. I, I know what to do. This is simple. I know the right thing. You do uh, Yuping Feng San or what have you, and it doesn't work. That's and it's so annoying. But these, of course, are learning opportunities. And eventually, I realised that, uh, and this this came partly from studying with uh, John Shen of um, the US of New York. And I didn't understand a word he said, to be honest, but I taped him as well and eventually realized some of what he was saying. And he was in—he was really talking about chaos. He would say things like, chi wild, chi wild, this patient has chi wild. And the patient's just sitting there, you know, not wild in any way. I found out what the character was for it. And it was the character Luan, meaning chaos. Oh, right. Right. So Qi Luan. So at one point I investigated Qi Luan as a as a thing, and of course that was really describing initially things like cholera, you know, 
chi going in the wrong direction in both ways. And then I realized that he was implying that there's a micro Luan, a qi luan that can happen. That's a development of qi, qi ni or rebellious qi, qi going the wrong way. That was a little bit more wild than that, uh, but it could happen on a micro scale. And then I realized that that is what Guizhertang is for: is for disharmony of qi and blood. Not that one's weaker or stronger, but they're not integrating properly. That they're not actually fully uh, interpenetrating. You know the hexagram sixty-three before completion. I am not familiar with it. Tell me about it. That's an alternating yin yang yang lines. So they're just all yin and yang completely joined together and interpenetrating. And in a lot of historical case histories, when the doctor had smugly announced that he'd cured the patient and he was writing his case down, he would write the patient. He would summarize that by saying the patient is now GG, meaning uh, harmonized in the, in terms of the meeting of the yin and Yang. This is something I looked into quite a lot, and I realized that actually, when you're at acupuncture college, you learn about separation of yin and yang being death. But actually, we have many deaths all the time that our consciousness, uh, when we're fully connected, and the, uh, the heart and the kidneys, or the yin and the yang, or whatever aspects of yin and yang we're talking about, were fully integrated, then we have our consciousness clear. But we go in and out of trances through the day, if only momentarily, and that momentarily we our relationship between yin and yang disintegrates. Emotions do this, really strong emotions. And, and Dr. Shen used to always say to patients who he'd identified this chi wild thing, he'd say, oh, you had a big shock. You had a shock which, which disturbed your yin yang, probably in childhood, he would say. And I realized that actually other emotions do that. If I'm carrying a piano, I always make sure my wife is at the bottom of the stairs holding the at bottom of the piano. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, if and if we're carrying the piano up the stairs, uh, the standard thing for me to say is um, up your end, uh, which is intended as a joke. The idea being that if you, you cannot laugh and carry a heavy weight at once, you drop it on your foot instantly because the moment your chi scatters, the moment your yin-yang interpenetration uh, is broken down, you just lose all your strength. It's you just lose gone. the consolidation. And so this is, a, this is something I've looked into a lot over the years. And so I would say that allergies on that is where whenever somebody reacts to something that is not a threat, shouldn't be taken as a threat, you, we've got this system in our exterior and in our nasal passages for reacting to foreign pathogens, uh, plague or whatever, and sneeze, trying to sneeze it out by a tsunami of chi. Um, but actually, when well, are you, you're not supposed to have that reaction to uh, pollen grains. And that uh, we live now in an environment where people are marketing to us using the strongest emotional tweaks they can on a daily basis year in, year out. Our, our system wasn't designed for that. Every five years, a neighboring village would come and attack us and burn our huts down and run off with our goats or something. But uh, that would happen now again. In between, we would be at peace. Now, it's the profession of journalism, it's the profession of media, it's the profession of advertising to disturb our cohesion of yin and yang. But my personal view is that allergies are to do with that. When we have strong emotional things like fear disrupting the yin-yang relationships of the kidneys or shock, that because of the tai-yang connection with xiao-yin, small intestine, bladder, heart, kidneys, then it affects the exterior of the body, even though it may be on the interior. So it's a mutual resonance thing.
you just described a patient that I saw yesterday who I've been treating her for about uh, two years now. She came in originally because she had been diagnosed with asthma and put on all kinds of drugs and two kinds of inhalers and told that you will need to do these for the rest of your life. And what was interesting about her is she said to me in the first treatment, very first visit, she said, well, you know, I'm, I'm terribly grieved. I, my favorite dog died and I'm so grief stricken, I can barely breathe. And now she's got this asthma diagnosis. And of course, as a Chinese medicine practitioner, I'm thinking, this isn't difficult. <laughs> this shouldn't be difficult. Well, I've been seeing her for two years. So where is the difficulty? Now, at this point, she uses her inhaler not three times a day. She uses it maybe once every three weeks. But what's fascinating to me is the fear that she has. So the, uh, she talks to me the other day, she was out for a walk and she sees that the trees are beginning to bud out here and she's terrified of the trees and she brings hatred out toward them because she's afraid she's gonna get pollen in her nose and now she's gonna be stricken and unable to breathe. And I'm looking at her and going, how are we living in such different worlds? You're not on your inhaler. I mean, on occasion, after you were like cleaning the garage and you raised some dust, you needed it. And yet she still harbors this deep, both fear and hatred toward the natural world. And, and maybe that's why I'm still treating her or why she still comes to me, because that is very much alive in her life. And I'm not sure how to treat something like that. But when we look at Gui Jertang, for example, we see a combination of pungency and astringency. We have herbs that help the yang expand and yet help the yin contract. So that combination of Gui Jir and Bai Shao is a pair like that, which has pungency and, and sourness contracting. And then it's got uh, Da Zhao and Sheng Jiang, which is the same. Uh, so it's repeated twice. This is what the Japanese uh, umei is about, you know, umeboshi, which is the pungency of Sousa with the soundness of the plums. The, I don't know whether you know, but in one of the hospitals in New York, they were doing clinical trials for the treatment of um, uh, peanut allergies in children using a Chinese herb prescription. And this was going on... Um, I think about six or seven years ago, and they, they got funding for clinical trials. And what was interesting was that they uh, were using Wu Mei one, which again is the same thing. It's the sourness of Wu Mei with the pungency of things like aconite in there. So what that does is bring yin and yang to harmonizes yin and yang by the opposing uh, or by resonating with the yin functions and the yang functions by doing them both at the same time. What the research group in New York did, unfortunately, was to no they didn't understand the dynamic of the prescription. So they said, oh, we really don't like uh, the uh, aconite in there, so we're going to throw that out because they didn't have a deep enough understanding of the of the prescription. So you can't do that without – you can't take out essential – components that are part of the thinking behind it and expect it to still work. So I have a suspicion that they emasculated the prescription. They even did it on rats, on mice with uh, allergies like that. But that's a real, that's a really good example. Those peanut allergies, those anaphylactic responses where the most inappropriately tiny trigger 
uh, suddenly kicks off chaos and, and a breakdown of the chi mechanism just in, immediately so that it can even kill you. For this patient of mine, I could consider some deep, deep harmonization perhaps. Yeah. I do a whole lecture on this. You don't want to ask, really. <laughs> it's too late. I've already, you know, since I've already asked, and I'm not looking for the entire lecture, but I, I would like some of the salient points of, of looking at how to harmonize the system so it is settled within itself so that, that these influences from the outside are not so terribly threatening. It's to do with stability that comes from a firm interpenetration of yin and yang. And you can do this partly by the choice of points. For example, uh, do 26, middle of man, is not called middle of man for nothing. It's the meeting point of all the yin and all the yang of the body. But it's not a very nice point to, to needle particularly. But of course, you can do it also by the needle techniques that you use. So there's a needle technique called Khan Li needling, which is Khan, the water trigram, and Li being the fire trigram. So it really refers to harmonization of fire and water. And when you do that, you are taking the yang layers of the tissues and you're, you're getting dirty in the yang layers and then taking the needle tip down to meet the yin layers deeper, the tissues, and then you're actually getting hold of the yin chi and dragging it up to the superficial level. So you're, it's like a dating agency. You're, you're bringing together <laughs> the, the yin and the yang, uh, at the exterior of the body. And because the, the acupuncture works, uh, we like to think, by the resonance of the exterior and the interior, that when we, we, we work on the exterior, it resonantly connects with things going on the deepest level. So uh, with a patient like that, I would consider doing Khan Li needling on, say, Ren 4 to harmonize the, the relationship between yin and yang at that level there. I don't bet on horses, but if I did bet on horses, I wouldn't just bet on one horse all the time. I think I'd have to, I'd want to, to, to increase the chances of winning by, uh, by doing other things as well. A respiratory physician I studied with many years ago in, um, in Shanghai, 1990, he said that you can't treat asthma or respiratory diseases without using moxa. So, and I think that's true. I think that uh, it's not completely true, but it's, it's pretty true. Uh, and so I like to do moxa on, on uh, patients with asthma. Yeah. So what was that doctor in Shanghai seeing that he thought the deep penetrating heat of moxa would be useful for a respiratory disease? There's a discussion to be had as to whether whether moxa is really heating. I mean, it's it's hot, obviously, when it's burning on the surface. But uh, moxa was used historically to treat fevers. You know, the, there are there are references in the literature to to treating fevers using moxa on do fourteen, for example. So um, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that moxa puts heat into the body. I think what it does is is move chi really well and harmonizes really well, but. I'm a difficult customer, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> the best kind. Because <laughs> I remember learning about moxa when I was in acupuncture school, and because I have respiratory issues, that's, that's actually what took me to Chinese medicine. I have tender lungs. And so lighting up those big cigars of moxa was not something that I wanted to be around too much. Now, that Japanese moxa 
where there's just not much smoke and, and, you know, you put it on and just sort of snuff it out. That seemed like a whole different thing. This person in Shanghai, were they doing the cigars or were they doing more of a uh, cone moxa? At the time I was there, I was in a respiratory unit and they were doing that, um, I've forgotten, the three heavenly days in autumn treatment because I was there in November and December. And um, you know that treatment where you do, I think it's do 14, bladder 13, and the outer bladder shoe point. It used to be called 37, I think, but they've changed all the numbers. Uh, so they were doing that on moxa cake on a, a separating device made with things like cloves. And, um, and I think they had aconite in there and ginger juice and those things. They were doing big cones on people's backs for that but of course in china they were getting a lot of bronchitic asthma they were getting lots of phlegm you know kind of mucusy phlegmy types of things and this was able to move the chi of the chest so that it would help clear away the muck of ages i love the idea of moxa as not necessarily being heating i mean in school it's one of the things that i remember learning as as a basic and, and one of the things that i love about being in practice for a few years is stuff that i thought was basic you hear something else and you go, oh, wait a minute. It's not necessarily so. There's a lot more nuance here than there is uh, stability for, for many aspects of practice. I think people have said that this is to do with the herbalization of acupuncture, that herbalists would view burning moxa as hot and not all acupuncturists in history have viewed it as hot. Having said that, if I have a patient with acute uh, damp heat in the bladder, cystitis, I'm not going to put lots of moxa on REM3 uh, because um, I think there's a good chance it would aggravate that. So it's a matter of judgment, really. Of course. Uh, yeah. yeah. I want to talk to you more about judgment and mastery and things of that nature. But but before we do, I, I want to circle back for a moment. You've really got me thinking about this thing of, of like expelling pathogens. You know, I mean, there there are some very chronic diseases that we're seeing a lot here in the United States. Lyme disease is, is increasingly on the rise. It's a big thing. I often have patients come in and they just say, oh, I need to detox. I think I'm toxic. Now, a lot of times when I hear people saying I need to detox, it's because they've been watching too many advertisements and the advertisements are saying you're toxic and you need to buy this product and poop your brains out. So I, I always take that with like a huge grain of salt. At the same time, it seems like there are things that linger and they cause mischief, right? Epstein-Barr, that's the other one that I was thinking of, that will sometimes result in different kinds of chronic fatigue and things of that nature. So there is this idea of lingering pathogens, and there is this idea that something that, that is lingering and doesn't belong there can get in the way of the Zheng Qi. And it, you know, of course, you don't want to tonify because you're going to tonify the, the pathogen and cause more trouble for the person than, than helping them. So you were mentioning uh, emesis. We used to think of that as vomiting, but you were, you were talking about you could make the eyes water or you could make people sneeze. I'm, I'm curious to know more about this sneezing therapy. Is this something that you've looked into or used much in your practice, or is this something that you know, we can take it as an idea and, and work with it as we see it arise? 
Yeah, I don't think I've ever given anybody sneezing powder. I did employ a Chinese doctor for a while who did actually make uh, some sneezing powder up for a patient. I accidentally just found it in a drawer actually last week. Uh, it's been sitting there for a, year, a few years. It's no good now. When you look at the Shanghan Lun, those formulas are nearly all about expelling pathogens in one way or another. And this was what Zhang Tsongzheng did. He, he, he realized that there were just three routes out of the body in that system. There was through the upper orifices, through the lower orifices, or through the exterior. And this, I think, was probably a good model at the time when Zhang, Zhang, uh, Zhang Jing was working, writing in Shanghai. But actually, of course, we had the whole warm diseases thing come along. And so I was unsatisfied because... I was seeing a lot of patients with chronic fatigue syndromes and post-viral syndromes in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was very touched by the, the way that this impacted on people's lives. I was really trying, desperately trying to find ways to help people suffering from this. And this then led me into trying to understand the uh, other ways of approaching pathogens that were stuck in the body. I again and again had patients come with uh, saying, oh, I want you to strengthen my immune system because I keep getting these, uh, these infections. I keep getting these sore throats and chest infections and sinus infections. And I would say, well, how does it start? Oh, it always starts here. And they'd point to a particular place on the neck. And then this would happen and then this would happen and then this would happen. And I would then think, I began to think this isn't you're catching a new pathogen all the time. This is a pathogen you've got already uh, that comes out again for a party now and again. And uh, and so I, I came across statements like uh, the new pathogen arousing the old as well. You know, this, this idea that we can have pathogens lurking inside, which does go back to the Neijing, but was very much developed later on um, in the Wenbing uh, school. So I began to look into that. This was before people had started to write books on Wenbing. It was difficult. I had to go character by character with my pathetic level of Chinese looking every other character up. But again, that was good fun to explore. And then I began to, I followed that right up until quite recently, that whole story, because I began to suspect antibiotics as being implicated in this. In the early 90s, they started to do, do research. Evidence-based medicine was invented, and people started to ask questions. In doctor world, there was always a big question about whether uh, if you had a child with a, with a tonsillitis, or a throat infection, whether you should give antibiotics and be vigorous, or whether you should just give them uh, Calpol painkillers or something and wait for it to go away. And so there were at least three clinical trials that I read in the early 90s that tested this. And they all found that it made no difference whether you gave antibiotics or not. They resolved in 4.7 days. But one of these studies, they did a follow-up, for a 12-month follow-up on these children, and they found the children who'd been given antibiotics were five times more likely to have a pattern later of recurrent infections. And then about 2012, 2013, there it was in an English science magazine called New Scientist, there was a lead article about the antibiotics in something like 60% of the infections they used for don't clear the infection, they just send it into, a, into hiding, into a spore form in the tissues. So I have that in, on my computer to show patients when, they, when I say, listen, you, it's not your immune system, you've 
got this stuck in you. And if you don't believe me, here's the research. And these, these are called persisters. Last year, I was lucky enough to have a professor of microbiology from Liverpool Medical School as a patient. And so to hell with his problems. I've got, I've got him pinned down. <laughs> I, 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 it's, about, it's all about me. So, and he knew all about that. He said, yes, those are persisters. And um, he says, you're quite right. That's, that's a major problem in, in medicine. So great to have patients with expertise of one sort or another. I learned oh, so yes. much. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's that old saw about we learn so much from our patients, and we really, really do. I mean, we absolutely do if, if we're uh, halfway awake, especially when we're not helping them. That's often the, the best way to learn from them, right? Because we got we to gotta get it figured out. The thing that you said just a few minutes ago, I find I can have experiences in the clinic and there's something and it just, it kind of lingers in the back of my consciousness. I don't, I'm not really aware of it, but there'll be things that happen and it's like, oh yeah, that again. Oh yeah, that again. Oh yeah, that again. Right. Where the patient says, yeah. And, and I started getting sick just like always. Right. And, and they'll say my throat or my ears plug up or whatever it is. But it took until we're having this conversation here in this particular moment where I go, right, there are people who are like that and they have this thing and it, and it cycles and cycles and cycles and cycles. And it's, it's like their old friend. Yeah. And it's very difficult to treat. The ones I succeed with usually are the ones that stick at it for six months, a year, 18 months, that sort of time. Because you can't go in there with high doses of herbs and hope that it'll go away. I've tried that. Hope it'll go away in three weeks. It doesn't. Um, so, but I think that there are reasons to believe that Chinese herbs with antimicrobial properties, Chinese herb prescriptions, are far better and far smarter than the prescription of antibiotics. Because an antibiotic is a single entity the, the bugs don't want to die, so the bugs can mutate. They, all they have to go is, is figure out how to survive with, in the face of that, that thing that's trying to bump them off. And, of course, they can do it quite easily. In a Chinese herb prescription, there may be 10 herbs, each with antibiotic properties, with different mechanisms, and each individual herb may have 5, 10, or 20 different antimicrobial active substances in them. The chances that your microbe will make all the mutations required to deal with all of those is outlandishly small. So that's another example of Chinese medicine being actually a lot cleverer than modern medicine in many ways. Well, and, and it sounds like with these kinds of things, it takes some time. I think it's helpful for us as a practitioner to know this will take some time because then we can get our patients on board with that. You know, a lot of folks come to see us because a lot of things have failed and they're hoping, you know, you hit a home run with that magical Chinese medicine thing that they heard about. And, you know, it happens often enough that it's easy to drink our own Kool-Aid and believe that we can always do that. But a lot of the time, it's not that way at all. It's a much longer journey of working something through. So when you're working with these kinds of patients and you're looking to, to get rid of these deep-seated bugs that are like living in that lymph node right there... I get the strategy that you're talking about here. Are there, are there different formulas that you tend to go to or start to think about when these sorts of people show up? 
And, and how do you know when it's time to shift from one to another? One thing that happens when you treat these things is that you set some of the pathogen will come to the exterior and the person will have an exterior pathogen, which is suitable. So I will usually have that patient have yin chow for, or a prescription like yin chow in their kitchen cupboard. So I say at the first sign of that happening like that, we want to push it out. So we're having an out thrusting exterior releasing effect. But in the meantime, I will be using substances that more gently move out and that are designed to resolve pathogens. Examples are swan shen was one that was used quite a lot, the, the herb swan shen, and um, a few others as well. Um, but they're generally uh, pushing pathogens out while having a detox. Uh, I hate no, I hate the word detox. I know. I, I, uh, I, hate, I, I hate the word detox too, but that, let's say it this way. The pathogen, the body wants to resolve it. It's either going to take it out of the urine or out through the stool. It may vomit it out, right? That's a possibility. Often things will come out through the skin, like you were saying, out through the exterior. And, and sometimes patients will come and they'll go, oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm getting worse. It's like, well, maybe you're getting better. It's one of those things I think we have to be cautious as practitioners to recognize, is this a manifestation of something inside that's coming out? Or is this something else? I think it can be very tricky to tell what's what in those moments. Yes, yes. My heart sinks when I see these people. And I, Mine does I, too. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I try and persuade them to go and see uh, a naturopath or something else, to do something else. But if they persist, then I have to take them on. Uh, just because it's a, it's a, I have to think very hard. I have to focus on doing the diagnosis really carefully. Because it, anything that, that, that's happening over a long time scale is harder to judge whether you're doing the right thing or not. And you don't want to go six months, nine months, a year doing the wrong thing, really. So it's, it's stressful. I want an easy life. <laughs> so you send them down the street. <laughs> if I can. The trouble is that a lot of them have already been down the street already because we, we're not first in the queue, are we, for healthcare? We're not the, we're not the first well, port of call. Oddly enough, I often get worried about the people when they come to me as the first port of call because they usually have expectations that are completely out of line with reality. That's a different story. So I just want to wind up on this pathogen thing and then we can we can dig into something else. I don't know why I've gotten so stuck on this, maybe because I've got some lingering pathogens myself. But like you were just saying, these things can be tremendously difficult to treat and we have to work really hard as practitioners with our diagnosis and with and with being attentive. It's not like getting rid of a headache. It's a whole different kettle of fish. Is there anything about these patients that have these lingering issues that kind of tips you off that, oh, this might be one of those that's got this deep-seated pathogen that we need to coax out? Anything that shows up about them that, that, that makes you think, ooh, I, I should send them down to the naturopath? And digestive stuff is quite important. I think the digestive efforts of naturopaths are quite good in some ways. Um, uh, the whole microbiome thing, and I don't really want to take on board people's microbiome issues. Um, so that, I'll do that then. I think this, this question of people saying, I've never been the same since such and such a moment, or the issue of 
these same symptoms keep happening, you know, in a in a pattern, and that too tips me off um, to that issue. But it's not my favourite thing anymore. I used to, when I was young, I could I could cope with it all and wallow through all the complexities, and I'm getting lazy now. I think. <laughs> Tell us what your practice looks like these days. What has got your attention and interest at, at this stage of your career? Well, I had a period where I was forced into political service in the world of Chinese medicine. Um, and so in order to try and pull rabbits out of the hat for our profession, I downsized my practice. So I, I, I took my practice from four and a half days down to two days and for a few years worked as the chairman of the British Acupuncture Council, which is the biggest, uh, most mature acupuncture organization in Europe. So I was there uh, not thinking about Chinese medicine I, because I, I've, I love everything. I just have a problem with, with wanting to study everything. So I studied for a while the business of marketing and branding and the issue of persuasion just because it's interesting uh, area of, of endeavor. Uh, I think I may have done it partly to, you know, from, from a point of view of marketing my clinic was how I was thinking many years ago when I started looking into that. But then I realized this whole business of uh, dealing with patients is more than just a technical issue. There is a magic that can or cannot happen in the clinical environment. And that depends on how skillful the practitioner is. And so I looked into the whole business of um, how you charm patients and how that whole behavioral behavioral economics works and behavioral psychology and also the issue of um, issues around uh, biases, you know, the way that we can actually be biased ourselves. So I looked into the whole business of cognitive biases and I then realized that that those things can be applied to marketing of our profession. Uh, and so when I had, I received calls to stand for, for election for our uh, national organization, I, I didn't really want to do it, but I felt that I had to because patient, people were saying to me, practitioners were saying, Charlie, we're fed up with our organization. We're going to leave unless somebody does something about it and you're the person we want to do something about it because you're a real practitioner. Uh-huh. So you and got so, persuaded. So I got persuaded into this position. Um, and so the last few years, I've done less practice. I've just done, got it down to two quite full days and I've done more political stuff. So I've been involved in, um, you know, Mel Koppelman in uh, Rhode Island. I, I don't know Mel personally, but I, I've I've seen Mel's work and, and and a little familiar. She's a firebrand. I mean, she's uh, a wonderful, uh, has a wonderful ability to chop up skeptics into small pieces and have them have them kind <laughs> of, uh, kicking on, uh, you know on the floor. She she had an online battle with an arch skeptic, a British professor called. Edzard Ernst, who's really quite unpleasant. At the end of the, the, her battling with him, he offered her a job working for him. Wow. Talk about persuasion. She pulled him to pieces, but with a plum, you know, with not him feeling bad. She's a very skillful woman, as perhaps uh, somebody to put on your list for geological as well. In fact, I just wrote her name down. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm fascinated. I've been quite interested in marketing communications um you use the word persuasion i haven't been i haven't really dug so much into persuasion lately as i've been digging into negotiation 
and the reason for that is I feel so often in my clinical practice like I am negotiating with patients not to get them into the clinic, not to get them in for another visit or you know to sign up for whatever. I am trying to negotiate with them so that they will stop getting in their own way. I'm trying to negotiate with parts of them that if they bring that part forward, they're going to get better, but they're like keeping it under a rock or there's aspects of themselves they won't let out. And I feel like sometimes I need to uh, be persuasive using negotiation skills actually so that they get access to this other part of themselves that can that, that can take care of the problem. Yeah. When I use the word persuasion, I, I don't really mean as in trying to persuade somebody to buy something, but actually persuading people to understand how to change. And the, uh, one thing I've learned, when one person talks to another person and gives them advice on what to do, it's rejected almost always. <laughs> um, because and, there's, and what, what you invite people to do is think of reasons why you're wrong. Having done this a thousand times, um, you, you realize that that doesn't work. And then, uh, so I began to think about strategies aimed at helping people where you can have their own voice telling them what to do so that it doesn't come from me, it comes in their own voice to themselves. That would be persuasive, wouldn't it? Well, it's a lot more persuasive than, than me wagging a finger and telling people what to do. So, for example, one of the techniques that came to mind that I've used a few times, well, I'll tell you a story. I had a, I had a vicar, I had a, a, a priest who came up well, quite a long distance to see me. And he'd retired. He was 70-something. And he'd spent his whole year in the same, whole life in the same parish with this nice country church somewhere and then the new vicar had come in and had undone all the things that he'd put in place and he was really angry at this so the condition that he brought to me which was atrial fibrillation um and a few other things when i said well when did this start it actually coincided with all those frustrations you can't stick pins in people and undo that you might help them feel better for a short while but but uh, so I said, I want you to go home and I want you to, if just before you go to sleep, go into a, a, a meditative state, like a Christian meditative state. And I want you to imagine you're in the last week of your life. And I want you to just imagine how that feels. And now I want you to look back at you now. And what would you tell yourself looking back to you now? What, what advice would you give yourself? And the beauty of that is that people know how stupid it is to hold those resentments and that it's just life killing. But if I say it, it's just, well, I can't do that. It's impossible. Oh, no, nobody can do that. But actually, to, for that person to do something in their own voice is, I think, a lot more persuasive. So I'm interested in the, what you might call magic as well. And, and some of the work on magic, some of the science on magic is really amazing to look at because it has applications in, in what we do um, because we're magical creatures. So I'm interested in, in magical communication in some ways. Can you give me an example of magical communication? I love Isaac Asimov's quote, the famous science fiction writer, about how 
any sufficiently advanced technology <laughs> is indistinguishable from magic. That's that goes in my book. That that's one of the quotes that goes in my book because I'm saying that uh, that any masterful Chinese medicine practitioner is indistinguishable from magic. It will look yes. like magic. It will to look outsiders. like magic. Yes. So that's something I'm interested. Yeah. So so tell me a little more about magic. Some other ways that we can apply some practical magic. There's a book called The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking. And you know there's that one of those laws is contamination. That's to say that objects carry with them some history, or it's believed in the magical brain that objects can carry. And there's been research at this. The Americans are wonderful at doing research on this sort of thing. So, that, so they did a study uh, at Berkeley, I think it was, where they took a bunch of students and staff, I think, at the university, and they took them in a room and they said, hey, we'd just like you to try this pullover on, please, the sweater on. And they said, uh, yes, we, but we need to tell you it was the actual sweater that was being worn by the chainsaw massacreist uh, when he killed his, all those people. But it's okay. It's okay. It's been washed. It's been properly washed. It's clean now. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the 90, you know, 97% of uh, students would not put it on because it was contaminated by the idea. So this, these are quite powerful drivers to our behaviors. There was a great story. I don't know what the, new, the two main ba baseball teams in New York are called. Is it the New York Yankees and the Bears or something? No, it's not the Bears. It's the, uh, I'm, I'm clearly not a baseball fan. I'm sure there's listeners going, it's the Yankees and the, I don't know, Dodge? No, <laughs> well, anyway. anyway, whatever. Two baseball teams. Uh, uh, two, two baseball teams. And one of them, a few years ago, built a new stand. Somebody from the opposite, a fan from the opposite team, got the lead hitter's shirt from his own team uh, with the number on the back and his name on the back. And he went and got a job in the construction team. And when they were putting the concrete footings down, he put the shirt in the bottom and then didn't come back. And he, they, they, they filled it all in. And then when the mayor of New York was due to open this, um, this new stadium, the day before, he said, oh, by the way, I put the opposition's big hitter's uh, uh, sweater in the foundations. So they stopped the opening. They dug up the footings in front of the television cameras, and they pulled out the shirt. That's contamination. The, 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 the building was contaminated. Later on, I realized there was a better solution than spending all, you know, half a million dollars on doing that. Uh, because if they'd simply put the male urinal toilets over that section of the stand, <laughs> that, would, <laughs> that, that would have been cheaper and probably more effective. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way magical thinking works. But the, that's a super book. I do recommend, recommend that book. But that whole... whole whole issue of the cognitive science of belief and belief change and um, the way the, the influence works because of those those underlying programs that people humanity has working they're very powerful it, it, it is and you know so often because we do see it in the marketing world i i think we actually i think in the marketing world we see very unskilled uses of it because the very skilled uses of it, we don't notice. No, correct. Right? The skilled yeah. uses, yeah. you won't notice. The unskilled uses, the used car salesman type uses, the unskilled, you'll see it. 
because it's obvious. And like you say, it's a technology. It's something that we can also use with our patients so that it's not our voice in their head. It's their voice, their story, their perspective. It's so much easier. I mean, I, I love what you say about that you don't want to work so hard. I these days often think of myself as a lazy acupuncturist. If I can do something and it's easier and it doesn't require a lot of mental firepower for me, I'm on it. And it seems to work better too when I'm not working so hard. Yeah. 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 Well, I have a lot more questions about this persuasion and marketing thing, and I, and but we're out of time here, so... We just may have to come back and talk more about this another day. The <laughs> okay, the, the, okay. the magic, the, the magical side of acupuncture. It sounds like there's a lot to talk about yeah. with that. And yes. uh, it's almost like using your words instead of needles. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Yeah. Charlie, anything else that you'd like to uh, share with the listeners here before we wind this down for today? Not really. I mean, I think you styled this session as a discussion on mastery. We didn't really talk about that, so maybe that has to be talked about later. The way I write books and write articles is by having an idea and then germinating it for years and years and years. And I think I've been thinking about what would I have wanted to have known when I was starting out in practice that would have led me more assuredly to becoming a masterful practitioner. Nobody's really done that in any systematic way. And so we drift along, you know, uh, getting more and more embroiled in the deepest esoterica or what have you. And I think that we can look at this from a from a, a traditional Chinese, cogn- you know, how what, what were they thinking about in the Han Dynasty point of view? I think we can think about it from modern terms as well, in terms of um, of the research into into what makes a good doctor. And there's some great books on uh, on on again in, uh, based on research done in America. There's a great one called by Jerome Gropman. Oh, I forgot what it's called. How your How Doctors Think. I think it's called How Doctors Think by Jerome P. Gropman brilliant book by an American doctor trainer who goes into all the all the uh, research into the skills that uh, good medics have. And what he says in there is that a really experienced consultant specialist in, in America who's really reached mastery has made a tentative diagnosis within 10 seconds of the patient walking in the door. And that's so Chinese because a Chinese master is doing that as well. So in a sense, it's already hardwired into clinicians, whether they're Western or Eastern. If you've got a certain mindset, then you are becoming more masterful as the decades go by. And I think that's really interesting. So my my interest in mastery is not me t- pretending to be a master and telling people how to do it, but it's looking at it as an object of inquiry and how it worked in ancient times, what masters thought and how they thought and what they did and what there is to look at in modern times that would help that. Because I think that stands a chance of giving us more direction as a whole profession internationally if we start off with with some pointers as to as to what it, what it consists of. Right. I mean, we often hear about masters and we would like to emulate them, but gosh, where's the roadmap? It sounds like you've been working on a bit of a roadmap. And I remember having a, a brief conversation with you prior to us sitting down today and we were going to get into that and well you know i these conversations unfold rather organically so thank you for that bit of foreshadowing we'll just have to have you back for a discussion about mastery 
always leave them asking for more is the uh, is my motto <laughs> very good it's been so good to uh, to to get to chat with you absolute I'll delight charlie thank you yeah okay take care all right friends that's it for today remember signing up to be a chia logician is another reason that i can tell my wife that i'm not cuckoo for doing this crazy podcast and Also, remember that we are going to be live streaming that Sa'am class here at the end of the month. That's June 29th and June the 30th. If this is a system that you've been working with or you'd like to work with, or maybe you've had some trouble already working with it, this class will help to get you up to speed working with it safely and effectively. As ever, thank you for listening. Drop me a postcard. Have yourself a lovely day, and I will look forward to talking with you again next week. Be sure to tune back in.